So if you will turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, and uh, we're going to be in verse 35 today. If you're following along in the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, we're on page number 891. So that'll make it easy to find as you're turning to that this morning. This Sunday, we're going to begin a a mini-series, if you will, in our big series of the Gospel of Mark. And so there'll be a four-part mini-series we're calling Authority Over Chaos. Authority Over Chaos. And so today is part one as we begin to study uh, Christ and his authority, even today as we will see over the wind and the waves over nature. But this will not be the climax in Mark's gospel. It will go from here into chapter 5 where Jesus will cast out uh, demons and they'll go into the herd of pigs and over the cliff uh, all around the Sea of Galilee here on the other side of the, of the sea. And then we'll see at the end of Mark chapter 5 where Jesus has authority over the chaos of death to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. Not just a physical illness, from the dead. Which is why I felt like it would be appropriate uh, next Sunday to just insert a message into our mini-series, kind of picking up on Mark's theme and tying into it. Authority over chaos part two will really be a sidebar discussion of Christ and his authority over death itself in himself. Right? So we see Jesus and the authority over nature, demons, and death. And next Sunday we will come to Romans chapter 6 and verse 9, where we read this. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He has dominion over death. Authority over the chaos of death, which is, as we will come to understand more clearly next Sunday, our final enemy... Humanity's final enemy in excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 25, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Christ's resurrection and his authority over death is our hope for our resurrection and the defeat of our final enemy, death. But that's next Sunday, which is Easter. And you may be wondering, well, what about Palm Sunday? Today is Palm Sunday, and we often think of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem this Sunday where the children were singing, and uh, Jesus is reminding those around that they're fulfilling the prophecy of uh, Psalm chapter 8 from the lips of children and infants. You have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. And here they were silencing the foes of Christ as they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. We often think of that. Brother Jim mentioned that when he prayed. And so here's the connection. See how my mind works. I'm I'm a little strange sometimes, but I think think you'll see this. I hope you'll see how this passage in Mark will relate to the traditional Palm Sunday passage. So, for example, we read in John chapter 12 and verse 12. The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Here's the key. Here's the connection. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. After his resurrection, they remembered this as though the measure that they measured with was measured back to them and added to after the resurrection when they came to understand that all of this was in fulfillment of God's word. But they were kind of slow. They were just a little slow, weren't they? They didn't get it at first. Even though Jesus was doing something directly prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, they didn't see it right away. It took the resurrection for them to start piecing together all the things that they had learned about who Jesus is. So in similar fashion, today's passage will show the immense power and authority of Jesus, and the disciples are again going to be a little slow, piecing it all together. Looking back, it must have been so obvious to them, just like Palm Sunday was. But in the moment, they're still trying to comprehend who Jesus really is. Now, the good news for us, as, as readers of Mark's gospel on this side of the resurrection, we don't have to wonder. You'll remember at the very outset, Mark made it very clear in his gospel in Mark 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Just going to clear the air. This is who Jesus is. Make no mistake then that here in Mark chapter 4, we come to another portrait of Jesus Christ, Son of God. My sweet for our anniversary uh, had this beautiful piece of art made for me. You'll remember when we were introducing Mark's gospel, I mentioned how there were some um, Greeks that came to Philip and they said to, to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And, and that oftentimes that, that would be inscribed or, or given for a, a pastor to remind him that every time I come to this pulpit, a, a preacher stands before you, this is what you need to see. You want to see Jesus. And what I said was that Mark's gospel makes this easy for me. It makes it super easy because they are portraits of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So why don't we stand together and honor the reading of God's Word and let us see this Jesus and who He is. Beginning in verse 35 of Mark chapter 4. On that day, when evening had come, He told them, Let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. 
a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So for today's message, if you picked up an outline on your way in at the doors, I, I've chosen to divide it according to the, uh, the original language. It's just there, there are three very clear places where you see there was a great something. There was a great something else and a great something else. It's just, it's clear there. And so I've chosen to kind of divide the text that way. You can see it in the CSB if you add one verse from the ESV to help you see the translation. Let me show you what I mean by this. In verse 37 of Mark 4, you see that a great windstorm arose. It was a mega storm, if you will. And then you can also look in the CSB to verse 39. It says, He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was what? A a great calm. So we have a great storm. We have a great calm. And then in verse 41, you'll need to look at the ESV on the screen here and see that the disciples had a great fear. It says they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, who then is this, that the wind and the sea obey him? So I I felt like that was the outline. It was just there in the text. And so we've got a a great storm, a great calm, and a great fear. And just for the setup, why don't we call the Sea of Galilee, the setting, a great place. It really is a great place, unless... (laughs) The Sea of Galilee truly is a breathtakingly beautiful place. I'm hoping uh, to go back and visit sometime soon. I didn't get to take my bride with me. I want to take her, and maybe you guys could come with us sometime in the near future. I don't know what the Lord would have us do, but I'm looking forward to going back to the Sea of Galilee. When I was there in 2015, I we, we spent a late afternoon and an early evening on a boat worshiping the Lord and feeding a bunch of uh, seagulls. <laughs> they were kind of all ready. Those tours, I'm sure, are coming often enough that they know they're going to get something thrown at them. Here I am, hoodie and all, uh, just for authenticating purposes to show uh, these are pictures that I took while I was there. Uh, I was on this boat ride where we even got to see the eastern shore that's going to come into play in Mark chapter 5, the Gerasene or Gadarene demoniac on the other side of the sea, they, where they believe is approximately the place where those pigs would have just gone over the cliff and to their demise. Um, it's simply a breathtakingly beautiful and serene place. You could call it a great 
place unless you find yourself caught in a squall that comes up from seemingly nowhere. The Sea of Galilee is surrounded by kind of mountains, high mountains. It makes it look like a bit of a basin, and multiple commentaries, your study Bible probably explains, sudden and violent storms are well known on the sea. It's just a well-known reality that they can spring up and you have these storm situations because the wind can come over the southern cleft and create a situation where the, the storm and the calm, it just, it's like it's constantly changing because the winds can come so rapidly. So, typically, the fishing was done in, in the nighttime. These fishermen knew what they were doing, and when a storm came in the evening, it was that much more dangerous because that was typically when things would have been calm. It's the kind of storm that struck um, and brought a fierce gust of wind upon the lake, and it was driving the water over the edges of the boat. So it's such that it was being swamped. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, um, in 1986, near Kibbutz Ginnasar, uh, they found this boat that they believed to be from about the time when Jesus ministered on the earth. It was uh, stuck down in the mud, and they actually... Um, surrounded it with foam, like a chemical foam to kind of keep it intact as they lifted it with a crane out of the sea, and then they dissolved the foam from around it and preserved it for for people to to just take a look at. It's about 27 feet long, so these pews are, I think, 20 or 21 feet, so imagine the pew edge to the aisle, to the other, you know, outside, added six feet or so to it, and then about seven and a half feet wide, so say maybe two and a half or three of these pews deep. Uh, not a very big boat is the point. And it, and it had uh, the ability to carry maybe 15 people in it. So here's the boat and the context, and all of a sudden there's wind and waves coming on, and we see the real problem. The problem is a great wind. A great wind. H- have you ever seen these t-shirts um, that are on the screen? It's a bomb squad t-shirt. If you see me running, it says, <laughs> try to keep up. If you see me running, try to keep up. That is basically what I think about when I think about what is taking place on the Sea of Galilee. When the, the expert fishermen are terrified, then you know there's a real problem, right? I am not a fisherman. I am certainly not the type of person you want to trust with your life on the line in a boating type situation. You want Mike or Mike or any of these Navy guys. You do not want me in a boating scenario. But let's be reminded of the fact these guys were not amateurs. They were not new to the sea. Many of them had made their living working on that very sea, and the text says they thought they were going to die. This was legit. It was a problem. Now, ironically, while they're panicking, Jesus is sleeping. (laughs) The only time in the gospel of Mark that it is recorded that Jesus is sleeping. Now, we know he had a human nature, but he was sleeping. The only recorded moment in the gospel is in the middle of this storm. Some people think that um, there's a 
connection point, maybe uh, with the story of Jonah, the Old Testament. That's why Mark draws in this detail in particular here. So you'll think of the story of Jonah. Jonah is sleeping also through a storm at sea. He's awakened by sailors in fear for their lives. Then after he's thrown into the sea, it grows immediately calm and provokes fear and awe among the observers. Of course, you've caught the differences, right? This is not an exact parallel, since it's Jonah's own disobedience that caused the storm, and it's God's discipline against Jonah that stills the storm. While the captain tells Jonah to pray to his God, Jesus himself is the one who commands the wind and the waves, and the sailor's fear and awe is directed not to Jonah's God, but to Jesus himself. So there's parallels and there's differences, but it is interesting And if the parallels are intentional, it could be Mark's way of saying what is said in some of the other Gospels, that someone greater than Jonah is here. Indeed, Jesus does display his authority, his power over the great wind. And at his rebuke, we see the solution to the problem, the solution of the great windstorm is a great calm. The solution, a great calm. Verse 39 says, He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. In Mark's gospel, we've already seen him demonstrate Jesus' authority a number of times. It's a common theme. But here in chapter 4 and into chapter 5, things get ratcheted up just another level. The main point of this narrative is all about Jesus's authority over the wind and the waves. He has all power over the chaos of nature itself. Notice how Jesus merely speaks to the wind and to the waves. And the inanimate forces of nature are portrayed almost like, like people or like animals. This is, they, they respond as he speaks to them, and he tells them this. He says, be silent. Put a muzzle on your mouth, literally. I love this quote from Mark Strauss's commentary. He writes, quote, creation is the servant responding immediately to the master's command. That's a good quote. Creation is a servant responding immediately to the master's command. Colossians 1.15, he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. When Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves, he speaks with an intimate knowledge and wisdom over them. He is the creator of all things, visible and invisible. 
and it's his command to them. Here in verse 39, that is very similar to the way that he spoke to the demon that he drove out in the synagogue in Capernaum. Do you remember that in chapter 1, verse 25? Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. The exact same phrase. He spoke to the demon, Be muzzled, be silenced. And the demon obeyed. And he speaks to nature and the chaos of the wind and the waves. Be silent. Put a muzzle on your mouth. And that's exactly what happens. Romans chapter 8 tells us that creation has been subjected to futility because of the fall. And it's now longing to be set free from its own bondage to corruption. This portrait of Jesus reminds us that Christ came to redeem every part of fallen creation. And he has the authority to do so. It's at this point that I want to remind everyone that just like Jesus riding on a colt was a sign of, of Old Testament fulfillment. All the messianic indicators were there. They similarly were all there on display to the disciples in this event at the Sea of Galilee. Had they not seen it already in Jesus's mighty works that he had performed in his early Galilean ministry, one of the things they should have put together perhaps but did not yet grasp was that this kind of authority over the wind and the waves was a direct indicator and fulfillment of the deity of Christ. Only God has this power in the Old Testament. Look, for example, Psalm 104, verse 7. At your rebuke, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. At his command, they are silenced. Psalm 89, verse 9. You rule the raging sea. When its waves surge, you still them. Psalm 107, verses 23 through 29, sounds almost as if there was a poetic paraphrase of Mark's gospel in chapter 4. In verse 23, it says, Others went to sea in ships, conducting trade on the vast water. They saw the Lord's works, his wondrous works in the deep. He spoke and raised a stormy wind that stirred up the waves of the sea, rising up to the sky, sinking down to the depths. Their courage melting away in anguish. They reeled and staggered like a drunkard, and all their skill was useless. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. And the waves of the sea were hushed. They could have seen it if they had eyes to see from the Old Testament. Only God has this power. And yet, we can't be too hard on the disciples. We have the inside track. We're readers of Mark's gospel. We already know the answer to their fearful question in verse 41. But it's obvious that Jesus himself was not satisfied with their understanding 
or their faith in his identity. He says in verse 40, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Well, this introduces a bit of narrative tension, does it not? Because what we've been seeing and studying over the last several weeks, these guys in the boat, I'm still pointing to you guys like you're in the boat, you folks on the front three, the ones in the boat are the so-called insiders. They're the insiders to whom the parables are being explained. And yet they're still slow to pick up what he's putting down. This theme really gets developed throughout the entire gospel, leading all the way up to the gospel's climax in chapter 16, where it is the centurion who proclaims Jesus' identity without qualification. He says, this man truly, he was the son of God. Even in chapter 8, when Jesus asks the disciples directly this same question, who do you say that I am? He gets the answer from Peter, where Peter makes his great Christological confession, but then he gets rebuked by Jesus, because he still doesn't quite get how all of this plays together, that the Messiah and his messianic mission is not merely to politically overthrow Rome. So we come to see that the veil was being removed slowly, but it wasn't truly until after the resurrection that their eyes were really opened to see the fullness of who Christ was. Just like we read in John's Gospel today in chapter 12 and verse 16. But at the very least, the response of the disciples shows they understand this is no ordinary man in their presence. And so we see the response. We see their response is a great fear. Literally, verse 41 reads like this. They feared a great fear. It's it's emphasizing how terrified they were. And who could blame them? I mean, go with me in your mind's eye. Can you imagine being there? I, I think the account really helps us. It is seeping full of eyewitness testimony. You've got the, the sight of other boats before their departure. You've got Jesus' snooze fest. You've got the importunate and rude awakening of Jesus. You have his rebuke of the wind and the waves and the raw honesty of the disciples' hard-headed obduracy. It's all so vivid, you could almost imagine being there. How many of you have been to Disney World in Orlando? Yeah, get those hands up high. All right, how many of you have gone to the Philhar Magic? Keep them up. Okay, the Philhar Magic is where you experience the story. It's like you can feel the water, like when the bucket spills and the Beauty and the Beast, you feel water spray on your face. That's exactly what this story is like. You can almost feel the misty sea on your face and then picture yourself in their place. This would have been absolutely terrifying. The storm was one thing, but notice in the gospel, the thing which they feared the most was the power of the one in whose presence they stood. Not the stormy sea. 
It was the immense and raw power of Jesus. They feared a great fear. And the question they ask in response is really the question for us today by way of application. Who is this? Who is this? People will go on to speculate in Jesus' ministry that he's Elijah or one of the prophets. Herod thinks he's John the Baptist come back from the dead over the whole decapitation incident. Jesus himself asks this question directly to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You, sir, who do you say that I am? You, ma'am, who do you say that Jesus is? Have you come to see and recognize that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you acknowledge that he is the promised Messiah who came to do the will of the Father who sent him? Jesus, for his part, never settled for being known as a good teacher. Jesus did not want to be known as an itinerant healer. He was not merely a good example of the way one should live their lives, a Mother Teresa figure, a Gandhi. He was not satisfied with that. Jesus is God in the flesh with the authority to speak to the wind, and silence the waves. And yet, with all his manifest power and authority, he became an obedient servant and willingly gave up his life. No one took it from him. He gave his life on a cruel and torturous cross to pay the debt you and I could never pay for our sinful rebellion against God and against his commands. The disciples, even at Caesarea Philippi in Mark 8, thought Jesus was coming to use all of his power to bring about a political revolution, the restoration of the political kingdom to the Jewish nation. But Jesus had come to do something much greater, to fulfill a grander purpose. He came to usher in a kingdom that would grow into a worldwide phenomenon that encompasses every tribe and nation and tongue. For a glimpse of that kingdom, we should look to the Apostle John's writing in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, and has set us free from our sins 
by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to God, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Who is this? This Jesus is the one who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. He is the one with all dominion forever. He is the one who has authority over the chaos of nature. Yes, he is the one who will see next week who by his kingdom, dominion, authority has defeated death himself and will defeat death forevermore. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that all across the room, the preacher included, that we have seen Jesus today. We have seen his power, authority, dominion, glory. Father, that we would be filled with holy reverence, great awe and wonder, And then overwhelmed to consider that this one whom you sent would willingly give his life to pay for our sin by his blood. Heavenly Father, please draw sinners to faith in Jesus today. Lord, I pray that across the room there would be someone here today that would recognize that if Jesus has this kind of power, this kind of authority, and yet would be the loving servant who would die, they would see and savor and love Jesus, put their faith and trust in him, believe like Anna testified of her faith, and we all have testified who have been baptized in Christ that that Jesus died for sinners and that he rose again victoriously. Father, thank you for the joy of this week and all that it means. Thank you that we can call the darkest day in history good, that Friday is good Friday because of Jesus and all that he did for us at Calvary. And thank you, Lord, that we have the joy of looking forward to Sunday, Easter Sunday, when we celebrate your resurrection from the dead. Father, thank you that every Sunday since then, we've been worshiping you on this, the Lord's Day, Sunday, reminding ourselves of your resurrection from the grave and your kingdom authority, dominion, and power over death. Lord, may we not live small-minded lives that get caught up in the things and the affairs of this world, 
too easily consumed by this or that or this concern or that worry. Father, may we see the grand and great picture of Jesus Christ, Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords, spreading his kingdom authority over all nations, putting every enemy under his feet. May we believe by faith, even when our eyes do not see this happening, Father, that you have placed Jesus on the throne and he rules and reigns till he will come again in all power and put death to death forever. Father, we long for that day. Our bodies groan for that day. Creation groans for that day. We wait with eager expectation and hope of the glory of the kingdom of God. Father, we thank you that this portrait of Jesus reminds us that the God-man is truly God. He is divine We worship Jesus as God. And we thank you for his authority. We thank you for his willingness to take on human flesh, to die and pay the penalty for human sin, and to rise again, retaining all kingdom authority to the end. We pray this in his name. Amen.